All right, folks, welcome back to the Fitz News Studio for another edition of the Weekend Review. It is go time. It is show time. It is the moment we've been waiting for. After months of anticipation, speculation, and machinations in and out of the courtroom, the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga is approaching its point of critical mass. Some are calling it the trial of the century. Others are calling it Murdoch-Palooza, but South Carolina's biggest criminal case yet, headed to the front porch of the Lowcountry, Walterboro, South Carolina. We're going to detail our coverage plans in this coming episode and provide a sneak peek of what to expect as that trial gets underway. Also, we're going to talk national politics. The first in the South presidential primary saw some big developments this week involving former President Donald Trump and his ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley. Those two on a collision course in this pivotal early voting state as the presidential primary is heating up. We're also going to dig into a political battle at the State House. Republicans in the South Carolina House of Representatives at each other's throats over a loyalty oath. We finally heard this week from the folks administering that controversial oath as to what they believe it's all about. All that and more heading your way on the Week in Review. All right, so as we mentioned in the intro, a big week coming up, folks. Walterboro, South Carolina, Colleton County Courthouse, Murdoch-Palooza, whatever you want to call this thing that's coming to the front porch of the low country. We call it the double homicide trial of Alec Murdoch, who again stands accused of killing his wife, Maggie, his younger son, Paul, a little over a year and a half ago on the family hunting property down there on the border of the Sockahatchee River. But again, national and international attention has been focused on this case for months. This news outlet has been spending the last few months preparing our coverage plans, and we introduced those plans this week, a post on Thursday detailing everything that we've got planned for this three to four week trial. Again, we don't know exactly how long it'll last, but we know it's gonna be, again, what some have called the trial of the century here in South Carolina. And in preparing for these proceedings, one of the big key components of our coverage is gonna be Ash Missouri. And we introduced her in a post earlier this week, but Ash, a former news anchor in the Charleston market, in the Columbia market, she's an entrepreneur, she's a corporate communicator, she's got all kinds of experience, a diverse background, just an absolute uh, gift that we were able to land her and get her on our team, actually leading our team uh, for the Murdoch trial. But I wanted to cut real quick to the intro with Ash Missouri. She and I sat down briefly uh, to talk about this upcoming trial and our plans. Here's a clip from that exchange. We don't know all the answers. We don't. None of us do. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I want to be fair. Some people might say if I'm interviewing certain people that I'm not you shouldn't know how I feel about something. If I'm doing my job, you should have no clue what I think about it. And that's what I'm trying to do, is that every day I change my opinion because I feel like if you're doing what you should do in this particular role, you should be changing your mind every day because you're absorbing new information and it's taking you all different directions. So that was my goal and I'm glad that you've been, you've been very like, I thought you would be very micromanaging and you haven't been like that at all. If anything, I'm like, give me an opinion. <laughs> Tell me that this isn't good enough. So I've enjoyed it. And, you know, you well, everything and, you've done has been amazing. So, I mean, well, I don't know about that, but I just think that when you become the story, that's where the, it becomes a problem. All right. So Ash has already been hard at work down in Walterboro, folks. And in fact, she filed a report just this week detailing the town of Walterboro's preparations for this upcoming Murdoch-Palooza again, as some are calling it. Let's take a look at that clip. 
Well, I was born here, raised here. I love Pluff Mud. Um, I love all the beaches, and my family has been here for many generations. I was born here. I'm a local girl. Um, and, you know, we're going to have this giant trial coming up in January, and I know that you've been preparing. You're the person that makes all the decisions when it comes to the courthouse and everything. So kind of what are your feelings about this trial coming to your small town? Well, it's a huge trial. And unfortunately, it's something that has affected many lives um, and families that, you know, um, both in Hampton County and in Colleton County. But we'd like to put a positive spin on something that happened negatively. So how do you prepare your staff for that kind of situation, knowing that all these people are going to be, you know, coming here and it's going to it be is. a bit, you know. This is huge. It is. It is international. So how do I prepare them? Well, we talk. <laughs> a lot. We meet a lot and we prepare. Mm -hmm. We try to be prepared and um, we, we're talking every day and then we'll be meeting weekly with city and county officials and the city and county have come together so well and making a plan mm -hmm. and um, just getting everything prepared just before we can, as much as we can before it comes. All right, what a great report there on the town of Walterboro, the good people there, all the hard work they're doing to get ready for this again, Murdapalooza, whatever you want to call it, that's descending on the town. But in addition to her reporting down in Walterboro, Ash has also been hard at work behind the scenes doing production work, getting our staff organized, and also assembling what I believe is going to be the best panel of any news outlet covering these proceedings, folks. Let me just throw a name out there, Jack Swirling. If you live in South Carolina, you hear that name drop, Folks, it's like E.F. Hutton. Everybody stops to listen to what, what this man has to say. Again, arguably the most seasoned, most experienced, uh, well-known defense attorney in the state of South Carolina. He's going to be on our air breaking down some of the details of this case. Ash has been working with him. We've also got First Circuit Solicitor David Pascoe, the sitting solicitor there for the three-county region just north of the 14th Circuit. Solicitor Pascoe is going to be on to talk about some of the prosecutorial angles here uh, that could come into play at this trial. And again, this is just the beginning of our panel of experts that are going to be weighing in on this trial, but also giving you some of the background about what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what certain things that happen mean. And as we get into that, I wanted to bring in one of our longtime uh, contributors, Steve Sumner from the upstate region of South Carolina. Steve has come on our air several times to talk about the Murdoch case, specifically the big boat crash case back in 2019, which again, got this whole thing started, which precipitated the fall of the House of Murdoch down there in the Low Country. But Steve came on our air this week to talk a good bit about some of the early phases of this trial, but in particular, the opening arguments. Here's what Steve had to say about that critical phase of the upcoming trial. Statement. Once you select the jury, uh, Mr. Arputlin and Mr. Griffin will decide generally only one attorney is allowed to make a statement for one party. Okay. Um, so they'll decide who does that, that, you know, I think it was Billy Graham that said, you know, people don't listen after 15 minutes or something like that. I think they'll go a lot longer than that. Okay. Uh, and the, uh, it is started by the state because the burden of proof is on the state. And I want to, you know, talk about that in a second too. So they give their opening statement. The defense gives their opening statement, setting the scene, um, talking about, what points they believe will be key in the case. Now, remember that what an attorney says is not evidence. And Judge Newman will tell the jury that. He'll say, ladies and gentlemen, 
We're getting ready to hear from the attorneys. What they say to you is not evidence. It is merely their opinion or their thoughts or what they want to convey to you, but that is not evidence that is coming in. This is just something that is a part of our process. And so they will get up, they'll make their opening statements. Uh, each side obviously will be taking copious notes on what the other said about where this is going. Uh, and then the evidentiary phase, well, of the case starts. The state proceeds first. Again, they have the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What does that mean? Well, in South Carolina, we had a Supreme Court case many years ago that defined reasonable doubt. And they said it is a doubt which would cause a reasonable person to hesitate to act. Hmm. Okay, that is the definition. It is a reasonable doubt is a type of doubt that would cause a reasonable person to hesitate to act. And in this case, act being act convict. To convict, correct, okay. exactly. And it, and so what I've argued numerous times is if you have a hesitate, you're not stop. If you think about stopping, if the thought of stopping crosses your mind, then our Supreme Court has already told you what the verdict is. The verdict mm -hmm. is not guilty. It's not guilty. Now, in federal court, it's defined a little more favorably to the government. And it says that basically this, the state does not have, the government does not have to prove it beyond all doubt, only beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you believe that there's a real possibility that this defendant is not guilty, then that should be your verdict. However, you must believe that there's a real possibility that they're written. And that's a better charge for the state. Mm -hmm. So the state. Yeah. In, in the trials I've been doing in the last 10 years, the judges read both of them. Yeah. Yeah, they'll read both of them. I want to thank Steve Sumner again for his expert analysis. We're going to be hearing a lot more from that interview that he gave us earlier this week. Just a fascinating look at some of the details of what we're going to see in this upcoming trial. But as we talk about opening arguments, I want to go to something that we've been hearing a lot about over the last few days, the opening argument for the defense, particularly the remarks that will be delivered to the jury by Dick Harputley. Now, these remarks, we are told, are going to be a paradigm shift, that they're going to turn this trial on its ear. Ordinarily, when you hear a defense attorney address jurors, they'll say things like, the state has to prove this. The burden of proof is on the state. They've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So as you listen to the state's case, remember those things. And the defense will say, we don't have to prove anything. It's all on them. Now, what I'm hearing, Harputlin is going to flip that script. He's going to flip that script, folks, and actually tell the jury that, hey, not only are we going to give you reasonable doubt, we're actually going to prove Alec Murdoch didn't do it. Again, that would be a huge paradigm shift where a defense attorney actually assumes that burden of proof and says that he's going to conclusively prove that the state's wrong in its allegations against his client. So be on the lookout for that. Obviously, Harputlin, a master showman who has found his stride over the last few months with a uh, fellow attorney, Jim Griffin. They started off very sloppy in this case, folks. Let's be honest. It was a very difficult first few months for Harputlin and Griffin. But after the indictment of Alec Murdoch last July, those two attorneys have found their stride. They have poked some serious holes in the case against their client and look for them to extend and push that momentum as the trial starts next week. All right, some huge first in the South presidential primary news, people. This was a big week as the jockeying for position in this upcoming Republican battle royale begins. It started early this week when former U.S. President Donald Trump announced that he would be coming to Columbia, South Carolina, the state house, the dead center of the state, 
to unveil his 2024 leadership team. Now, Trump will be flanked at this event by Governor Henry McMaster, one of his uh, early supporters, and by U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, one of his later, more opportunistic supporters, if you will. But Trump's announcement, as I noted in our coverage this week, is a key litmus test because it's basically going to show who within the Republican establishment in South Carolina is with him. Now, the GOP establishment has been marching in lockstep with Donald Trump for a long time. In fact, the party actually canceled, called off, scrapped the 2020 presidential primary, even though Trump had opposition, as a sop to the former president. Now, does Trump still hold that sway over the, the GOP here in South Carolina? Does he still command that level of loyalty? Well, we saw him give a speech last year in Florence, South Carolina, where it certainly seemed that stranglehold was still in effect. But in the aftermath of those 2020 elections, where the Republican wave, the red wave that everyone thought would wash over the Democratic majorities in the in the U.S. Congress failed to materialize, Trump took a lot of the blame for that. More recently, in the big battle in D.C. over who would be the next Speaker of the U.S. House, Trump also saw his luster dim a bit when he failed to move the needle in his efforts to get Kevin McCarthy uh, pushed over the line as the next U.S. Speaker. McCarthy obviously ultimately won that job, and Trump did get some credit from him for that. But when Trump publicly came out for McCarthy, told lawmakers to move in his direction, they didn't move. And so again, I noted in that report, if you call the cavalry and the cavalry doesn't come, you've got no cavalry. But Trump, I suspect, still has a pretty sizable cavalry here in South Carolina, but we're going to see just how big when he holds that event in South Carolina later this month, 28th of January, South Carolina State House Fitz News will be there providing some coverage of that. Hopefully we'll get our credentials so we can get deep, deeper access into that event. But while Trump's machinations are ramping up here in the Palmetto State, a big announcement from the Palmetto State's former governor, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, who previously said she would not run for president if Trump were a candidate, that she would in fact support Trump if he were a candidate. She's flip-flopped, people. Nikki Haley now saying she is actively exploring a bid for the White House in 2024, telling Fox News' Brett Baer earlier this week that yes, she believes she is that leader, that she is capable of ushering a new generation of GOP leadership, and that she is the one who could, again, knock Trump off his block and be the GOP nominee for the White House in 2024. Now, here's Haley's problem. As of this writing, the Republican base that's looking for that new voice, that's looking for that fresh face, that's looking for, again, a younger, potentially, uh, leader. They're not looking to Haley. They're looking down to Florida. They're looking at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. According to the latest Real, Real Clear Politics polling, DeSantis is drawing more than 30% of the GOP primary electorate. That's nearly 10 times the level of support that Haley is receiving. She's stuck at around 3.5%. Trump, for a long time, well over 50%, but he has seen his star fade in recent months. Trump down around the 44% range. So he and DeSantis really running neck and neck. And in fact, we have seen polls when DeSantis and Trump are running head to head, Wall Street Journal poll, several others that actually showed DeSantis ahead of Trump in a head to head matchup nationally. Now again, national polls, they're great to look at, they're fun to write about, but do they matter? Not really. It all boils down to those key early voting states. I'm talking about Iowa, I'm talking about New Hampshire, and I'm obviously talking about South Carolina. Now, Democrats have recently flipped their calendar and put South Carolina at the top of the pecking order, the very first state to, to cast their presidential votes. But on the GOP side, South Carolina still falls in at third 
on that calendar behind Iowa and behind New Hampshire, but it is the first in the South presidential primary. And again, this could be one of the most unique elections we've ever seen. We've actually got a former South Carolina governor seeking the presidential nomination. And one of those first key battlegrounds is gonna be her former state. How will Haley fare? Will she be able to dislodge Trump? And that again, uh, almost monolithic support that he's had from the GOP establishment in the Palmetto State, we'll see. But this fight is on, folks. It's underway. Count on Fitz News to keep you up to speed on the very latest on that first in the South nominating battle. All right, so switching gears from national politics back to the state level, I wanted to talk about an issue that we've been covering for the last few weeks, but that has started to dominate discussion at the State House and beyond. It's been in the New York Times. It's been on Glenn Beck's show. It's been on local talk radio all over the state and just dominating discussion under the dome at the State House. I'm talking, of course, about the loyalty oath that the South Carolina Republican majority and the House of Representatives has attempted to push on the conservative wing of that party, of that caucus. And again, this has been a huge rift within the GOP supermajority in the House. But up to this point, We've heard very little from the people who are pushing this oath. We finally did this week when South Carolina House Majority Leader Davey Hyatt, a lawmaker from Pickens County, South Carolina, broke his silence on this issue and finally addressed, or again, attempted to address the issue of the loyalty oath that his caucus has been pushing on these conservative members. Now, according to Hyatt, and I quote, there is no oath. That's according to him. He said that folks were being deceived, they were being misled, that they were confused. I actually use that term. Probably never a good idea to call your constituents confused. But again, according to Hyatt, voters being misled by media and blog reports. I guess he's taking a little shot there. But again, Hyatt claiming there is no oath. But what was interesting about his statement, which was released on Thursday of this week, in which he invited folks to look at the rules of the caucus and decide for themselves, he completely omitted to mention the rule that is at the very crux of this scandal, a rule which prohibits Republican lawmakers from engaging in a primary election against another incumbent. There is one reason for this rule, people. It is an effort by the left-leaning, fiscally liberal wing of the Republican Party to stop losing elections. Again, we saw multiple left-of-center GOP lawmakers lose elections. I'm talking about former Ways and Means Chairman Brian White, once an incredibly powerful lawmaker in Columbia, Education Committee Chairman Rita Allison. These are two Republicans, again, with a history of voting with Democrats for big spending, voting against Republican principles. They were defeated in their primary elections this last year, 2022. And clearly the Republican majority does not want that to happen again, or or more accurately, doesn't want it to happen to them. Now, again, this is problematic because, again, in our democracy, lawmakers ought to be able to endorse whoever they want. And I've heard from several of these lawmakers who, in fact, have told me, Will, what if one of my buddies runs? What if one of my business partners runs? What if a family member runs? Am I supposed to not support them just because there's some, again, fiscally liberal Republican sitting in that seat? No, I should be able to support them. They're absolutely right. But this is, again, let's call it what it is. It is a loyalty because it it is demanding that these Republican lawmakers stay out of the primary races and not endorse challengers, even though those challengers would vote more consistently with GOP values and vote to improve some of the piss poor outcomes South Carolina has seen educationally, economically, infrastructure, with judges, you name it. South Carolina, again, at the bottom of the barrel, so many national rankings, 
small group of the GOP caucus is trying to change that, and clearly the leadership of the caucus doesn't want them to do that. So again, I credit Davey Hyatt for finally coming out and saying something about this issue. He probably should have addressed it months ago when we first started reporting on it last uh, back in December. But again, I credit him for finally coming forward and saying something. But folks, if you come forward and say something, you need to actually say something. And his statement, again, completely ignored the crux of this issue, didn't even discuss that component of it. And again, as I have warned readers from the beginning, our audience, I've told them this isn't just about elections. Some of these lawmakers have been told that they can't post pictures of the voting board. Uh, and in fact, one of the assistant majority leaders came out just this week saying that they, those posts of the voting board were deceiving people, that they were misleading and providing misinformation and disinformation. Folks, they're pictures of votes. Again, how is that disinformation? As I noted yesterday, this is very simple. If Republican lawmakers in Columbia, South Carolina, don't want to be criticized over terrible votes, they should stop casting terrible votes. If they start putting taxpayers first, small businesses first, if they start prioritizing public safety, if they start prioritizing school choice over continuing to pump billions of dollars into the same failed uh, government-run system. Again, these are not complicated things, but they do require new leadership in South Carolina. They do require the Republican Party adhering to those stated values. Again, I always thought Republicans were for less government, lower taxes, more personal freedom. That has not been the way the Republican majority in South Carolina has governed. And folks, that is why that Republican majority is moving to muzzle any dissent of its piss poor outcomes. All right, that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. Thanks for tuning in. Again, incredibly excited about the big week coming up, the Murdoch murders double homicide trial of Alec Murdoch, the Fitz News crew, We'll be packing up the shop here in a little bit and heading down to Walterboro to cover that trial again. If you want to follow the very latest on this huge proceeding, keep it tuned to Fitz News. In fact, we've got a landing page ready for you. It's fitznews.com slash Murdoch Murders. You can see it here on the screen, fitznews.com slash Murdoch Murders, or just click on Fitz News and look for that big Murdoch Murders tab because we've got everything lined up for you there, all the breaking news, all the analysis as we prepare for South Carolina's trial of the century.